such a disorienting time. Yeah. You know, I mean, for people like us who are in our blue dots and thought Obama was the sort of the center, the political center of the country. It's like, yeah. A moderate. Yeah, and acceptable. And sure, yeah. there are some people complaining, but Republicans always complain about Democratic yeah. presidents. And this election in this period has been such a revelation, you know, right and, and left. Yeah. So just the politics of it is really fascinating. And I and maybe I don't know in among my friends we're sort of not doing anything but just kind of obsessing over the news. And this period of the last couple of weeks has been alarming cuz it's like there's no Russia stuff. Maybe there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. Oh no. This is the new reality. So I was sitting at a a bar in Brooklyn watching the election returns. You know, and it was that sort of that that singing feeling at one point where yeah. it slowly starts to dawn on you that this is kind of the new reality. And I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself, and then I get a <laughs> text from my sister who's got a chronic medical condition. Yeah, and it was like, oh yeah, no, this is. I get to feel sad for myself, but this is life and death for a lot of people. With the healthcare stuff, yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah, for sure, and it's. Um... Just the sense that for a lot of people, the healthcare stuff and just, you know, um, a lot of different facets of the population, the impact will be immediate for them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like just this week with the Senate vote mm-hmm. and seeing what the reality, the political reality of that is. I mean, it, it, it has I, – I went to the doctor today and I talked to a doctor about this and – she was like, oh, yeah. About like, healthcare. Yeah, I just said, um, what's your opinion about this? Yeah. And it's like, oh, I, I think there should be universal healthcare. I think there should be single payer, no question. And that yeah. surprised me because I've heard that doctors are kind of, they're, they're, they don't want that. But there's something about this period that feels very disorienting and scary, but also things like single payer healthcare, are, it's starting to feel inevitable, hmm. maybe. Because – and maybe we have to go through a period of real um, trouble. Yeah. I mean, we're already in the trouble, but like when the real sort of concrete stuff starts to happen. So, yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. I went through this. I, I suspect a lot of people did. The rationalization and the acceptance and, and the idea that, you know, maybe if you project out far enough that maybe Donald Trump won't be a bad thing because the pendulum will swing completely in the other direction. But yeah. again, you start talking about the immediate impact. And, you know, somebody pointed out to me that, that there is still a Supreme Court vacancy yep. left to fill. So it's hard to know what to want because – is moderation down the line the best way to go, or do you need something really terrible to happen before people wake up? Yeah, revolutions are scary. Yeah. And civil wars are not that we're, I don't think we're going there, mm-hmm. but just sort of like a little hint of a whiff of a maybe a possibility yeah. of something extreme happening in the country. You know, we're in, we have been, we've had this period of relative moderation and centrism, or at least yeah. sort of the, the theater of centrism. 40, 50 years? Yeah. 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 And if you live in New York City, what you see is sort of rising. Everything, the parks are getting better. Property values are rising. Yeah. We're on a road. Prosperity is the is inevitable. But no, I mean, I think this is a, is a reminder that like for a lot of the country, from what we're told, is like, nope, a lot of people left behind. This is all sort of a source of resentment and anger for them. 
you know, these gleaming blue dots, and they want to tear it all down. How long have you been in the city for? 1995. Okay. I was born here. Okay. Um, and I spent my first three years here. Then I grew yeah. up in Massachusetts, and I went to college in Chicago, uh-huh. and then I moved back here in 1995. So obviously, it's an interesting conversation. It's a conversation that New Yorkers have consistently about whether that necessarily means it's it's better, whether, you know, rent price is going up and all the... The kind of the 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 loss of character. Having lived in Chicago, I'm I'm sure that this is going on there to some degree as well. But the thing that strikes me every time I go to Chicago is how much of like the old weirdness is still intact there, and it just doesn't. You don't really get that in Manhattan anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Chicago, it's definitely gone through the same thing Mm -hmm. in some ways. There are neighborhoods that were funky and poor and and ungentrified. Yeah. Um, that are now really sparkly and, you know, urban professional young families, that kind of stuff. So it is happening in Chicago. I mean, the difference is New York is, is contained, you know, Manhattan Mm -hmm. is contained, so it can only, you know, the wealth gets concentrated in a different way. In Chicago, it it sprawls in every direction. It's more, Chicago is much more segregated. Yeah. You know, there's North and South. Did you live in Chicago or? No, no, I've just visited, but. I, I definitely got that impression. And yeah. Boston's kind of the same way. I always have this conversation with people every time I talk about Boston, but how Boston's a weirdly racist city. Yeah. It's such a blue, progressive, New England city. There's still a lot of that residual anger there. Yep, for sure. I mean, that's <laughs> there's the famous photograph of a guy, I think, trying to spear like a black businessman, a white man spearing a black businessman with a American flag. Yeah. It's like one of the famous photographs i think from the busing era i think yeah i think it had to do with busing in the yeah. 70s yeah you don't think of boston as being <laughs> red Sox. i mean i'm from massachusetts so yeah i consider myself from massachusetts so you know the red Sox. i think were the last team to integrate are you a new york lifer at this point i think so it's hard to imagine living someplace else yeah it's vibrant you know i do theater so theater is this is you know one of the capitals in- it's got a couple theaters around town yeah <laughs> that's right I've heard yeah, I mean New York and Chicago and uh, San yeah. Francisco and there are other other great theater cities. I am from San Francisco, and San Francisco is kind of, in a lot of ways, kind of an also ram when it comes to the larger. You know, it's like a secondary market, and they eventually trickle out there. But everything is sort of bubbling up and 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 starting in New York. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a place where you're. This is where Broadway is. Yeah. It's even. Even if it seems impossible, it's you know it's within sight. You can walk. Yeah. You can walk to Times Square and go to TKTS and yeah. see yeah. some of the great theater artists in the world doing their thing. So it's it's yeah, it's an exciting place to be, and I think so. Do you think net it's changed for the better? In some ways, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a better place to raise kids. Yeah, I mean, we're sort of on the European model, which is. Wealth is concentrated in the center, yeah, and the people who have who don't have the means are pushed out. Yeah, the people with fewer means are living in Jersey City mm-hmm. and Yonkers and um, you know East New York and. Um, that's I've, I've been in Astoria for about four, like twelve or thirteen years at this point, and, yeah. and it's really just starting to hit that critical mass right now. It, for some reason, I don't entirely understand it. It was a bit of a holdout, but it's. Just in the last two years, it was it was funny. I was living with a 
was living with a girlfriend for a year and then we we moved out and the during the period in which we lived in that apartment there were uh two gay bars opened up within a five block radius and all of a sudden rent was three hundred dollars more yeah. expensive Right, the artists come and yeah. then the rents go up, and sometimes it's a deliberate model. Like Dumbo is like that. I think the real the guy the yeah. guy who developed Dumbo very premeditatedly said, yeah. "Artists come knowing full well that in ten years it would be it, it would be a huge yeah. investment." So, and the bad thing is that people without means can't live here. Yeah. So that's I mean, just in my tiny world, putting on a small show. On the Lower East Side, like on Ludlow, Ludlow or Rivington, one you know downtown, it was possible. You could just go yeah. and go to one of these found spaces, and you could do it. And um, it's always been much harder here than in Chicago, mm-hmm. which is the, my other the other city that I have some experience with. Now it's those theaters that were functioning in the Lower East Side. Now they're in Brooklyn. Now they're in Queens, yep. and they're pushed out. So they're just following. They're 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 following the trajectory of the, you know, artists and musicians and you know creative people. So on that on that scale, that's that's not so good. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't know that I would choose to go back to like the seventies. I remember coming here as a kid in the seventies, and it was you know. It was hard times. Yeah, Trash I just on watched the, the Warriors the other weekend. <laughs> yes, like yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it, there's a lot of reasons not to romanticize that time in New York City. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I don't know. I mean, it's 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 still it's great. It's yep. a thrilling city, you know. Um, today, like a thing that I like to do if I have the time is right now I live on a hundred Fifth Avenue between Hundred Eighth Hundred Ninth Street, mm-hmm. um, and I will walk down to this dojo where I do karate. So yeah. it takes me about two hours. It's very sort of this indulgent sort of hike, but it's fantastic. You can walk through Central Park, through Conservatory yeah. Gardens, and it's really spectacular. You know, you walk past, you know, there's Trump Tower. There's the... <laughs> there's yeah, the, the, there's the, the Eye of Sauron. There's the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's the Death Star, and you yeah. walk a little bit further, and there's... there's um, uh, Rockefeller Center. Yeah, and- I started doing the same thing a couple of months ago during spring. I just, I hadn't, I just kind of stopped walking in mm. New York for long distances. We're here on Ninth uh, and Broadway, and in Queens, so I would just, I would walk up to Fifty uh, Ninth Street a couple times a week, and it's, just, it's a really good way to fall in love with the city again. Yeah, and you have like some great parks out there too, right? You, the bridges are all all yeah, around. Yeah, the story of park is the um, uh, the Hell's Gate Bridge sort yeah. of goes right right on top of it. Yeah. Once upon a time, I was a location scout. I, I yeah. scouted locations for Law and Order, and we would go out to Astoria quite a bit because you have yeah. the freestanding houses, and it can kind of be the suburbs. It must have been a really good way to get to know the city too. I, when I first moved out here, I was I was working for Zagat, and they 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 had launched a theater guide. I probably don't even remember it, but it was it was pretty pretty uh, short lived. But uh, it was a really good job because you know we would we would stand outside the shows in the matinee and then stand outside the shows in the evening, get paid downtime in the middle, and then you you had to learn to get around the city by necessity. That sounds like a great job. Yeah, but I assume that location scout. I mean, how much of that is actually just sort of going around and literally scouting locations and like looking for cool places that would fit a certain narrative? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, with it, it, it is great in that 
it forced me to go to locations I never, yeah, I would never choose to go to, or I never would have had access to. So the very, the very high, you know, with the Central Park South penthouse apartments, and you can see what that is, and then going to like there was this area around Bradhurst Avenue. Uh, Where like, is Bradhurst Avenue? Bradhurst Avenue is like in the around 140s, okay, and. It's like East Harlem. Okay. North. Yeah. And it was this area, I don't know, I actually haven't been there in a while, but it was just all burnt out. It looked just like... Just like above Spanish Harlem. Yeah. Yeah. And there were apartments there where um, people who were just out of prison were placed there. So mm. this was sort of like a a place where you would go after prison to start to sort of reintegrate kind into... Kind of a halfway house. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, and they wanted, you know, there are some of these apartments. I'm not, not those. The, those were next to the apartments that I was scouting, but they wanted a location where um, a body could be found. So that was again, that's like yeah. a place where it's like, okay, yeah. I never would be in this neighborhood, but I'm on yeah. the job, and so now I have to be here. And it forces you to interact with the city in the way that you wouldn't, and to sort of suppress your your instincts in your survival sort of instincts just to sort of try to get access to the places. So it was interesting. I mean, one thing that I learned as a location scout was how important television is to people who are living in the really poor parts Hmm. of the city. Or at least that was... Just how exciting it is to have something be shot in the neighborhood. Yeah, the most welcoming neighborhoods to me were the most down-and-out neighborhoods. Yeah. And the most unwelcoming neighborhoods were the well-heeled places. They didn't... They didn't care. They probably didn't like your show, and they didn't they want people. They were put upon. By yeah, the, you know, a little yeah, bit yeah. put upon. And then the East Village was a very, very hard place mm. because there were political people who just didn't want you there for political reasons. Yeah, and they would they would make it really hard for you, and they would do things like um, if you had a night shoot, they would put tin foil on their windows <laughs> to screw up the lighting. And just to essentially protest your presence there because yeah. it is, you know, if you live in New York City, and it's it's a pain. So being part of the location department, our people were dispatched with piles of cash hmm. to sort of say, please take the tinfoil down. So that was part of that. I, I didn't do that myself as a scout, but that was sort of part of the reality of it. The The really depressing thing about that story is the people who are most excited about it are the ones whose neighborhood is portrayed as a place that you would find a body. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like they have to know that if you're there shooting in one of the worst parts of New York, that it's not going to be a good narrative. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like they knew the whole show and they're very excited. Yeah. And, and the, you know, when I was doing it, if you wanted to rent in a, a typical fee mm-hmm. would be $1,200 a day. So you would pay, I don't know what it is now, I'm sure it's much more than that. But this To pay is, somebody to like use their apartment? Yes. Yeah. So this is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you would pay them $500 for a day of prep where the production designer and the production department would come and paint it and set it up and dress it. Yeah. And then you'd get paid $1,200 a day and then $500 to break everything down. So that was... You know, if you're poor, that's that's good money. You know, it's it's funny. It's like there was a story going around about Donald Trump when I was a location <laughs> scout. And the story about him was 
um, there's a location manager who worked for The Devil's Advocate, mm. a film with... Is, oh, was that Al Pacino? Al Pacino and I think Keanu Reeves, I want to say. Sounds right, yeah. But they needed they needed The Devil's Apartment. Yeah. Devil's going to live in a nice place. Well, and it's going to be like... No, I'm sorry, not his apartment, his office. Yeah. And so they needed uh, a, 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 the fanciest possible place. And so they found a catering space in the upper floors of Trump Tower. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, I didn't – this is sort of the rumors what scouts were talking about at the time. This guy negotiated with Donald Trump to say – to film in his catering space for a day. And Trump said, yeah, great. And then days would pass and days would pass and then what you need to do as a location manager is you need to get the location contract sort of set. And the – the location manager put it off and he put it off and he took Trump's assurance that it was going to be all set. And then as the shoot date got really close, the price started to go up mm. to the point where he had to pay, I think, $20,000 for a day of filming. So it was a cautionary tale of yeah. like, get the contract. Don't, yeah. don't trust Donald Trump. But you're so far down that road that you can't really back out at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's this judgment call where you, it, like in film production, you're so by the seat of your pants often that you just yeah. sometimes, I mean, obviously this was an error in judgment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. cost-benefit analysis, as they say. Yeah, and sometimes you take someone at their word, I yeah. guess. And, and sometimes that person is Donald Trump, and that's probably not a good idea in that case. Yeah, I just remember like when the Trump sort of presidency started to take off, that was the story that kept on rattling around in my head, like this yeah. old story from the 90s of, like, don't trust him. Did you get into the location scouting? Because, I mean, I guess in a sense it's sort of peripherally related to being in theater and that at least it's, you know, TV, movies. You're kind of in that world. It was it was very lucky. They they were filming in the building where we were subletting. We moved to New York in 1995. That year they filmed in the building where we were subletting, mm-hmm. and they filmed in our apartment actually, because our, I think, our, the people we're subletting from, I think they had either set it up or they were, let the Law and Order people know that they were interested. So they scouted in our apartment and I needed a job Mm -hmm. and I, and I, I I asked if I, you know, if I could work for them. They probably get that a lot. Yeah. And it was, it was a very lucky moment where they were saying, ah, we just lost somebody and yeah, we could use somebody else and why don't you shadow this guy for a while? And so I just kind of, I just, you know, I tagged along with a location scout for a couple of weeks and then they decided to hire me Hmm. just because they needed somebody and it's, they just need someone personable and someone who's willing to knock on doors and has a driver's license and, um, yeah, it was really easy. It was the only – locations at the time was the only ununion, ununionized department in film production. So that was another thing about it is like you didn't have to – Get the card and – yeah. Yeah, it's unionized now I think in some yeah. fashion. I think um, every everything related to TV is unionized at this point it seems like. Yeah. And it was it was great. I mean it was it was a fantastic job in that you really had the keys to the city. You could go yeah. anywhere. You were welcome almost everywhere. And it was a constant um, confrontation and uh, revelation of what this city was. 
and who lived here and how people lived. You know, every day you would go into apartments and you take photographs. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, you're, you know, you, it, when I was doing it, we took, it was actual old film. Now it's digital. Um, but you would spend several hours assembling your photographs into these panoramic huh. folders. And you could spend time looking at these photos of the people, of the apartments that you got into. On 72nd Street, there was a fortune teller mm-hmm. on 72nd Street, tiny little studio. But a real legit Eastern European. Yeah, I don't, th- <laughs> I don't know if they were legit, but they were yeah. Roma, and yeah. they lived on the apartment above. And so I scouted this apartment, and I went up, and they said yes. And the, it was a broken English. It was a little hard to communicate. So I went up to their apartment. The apartment was impoverished Yeah, in this Upper West Side, 72nd and Broadway, in a tiny apartment. And then I took photos, and at the end of the day, I assembled them. And then I noticed in the photograph, there was a crib that I hadn't really sort of looked at carefully. There was a pl- there was a plank of two by four on top of the crib there was a, a cinder block on the uh, not a two by four uh, plywood yeah and there was a cinder block on the plywood and there was a kid in the crib so this <laughs> this was the child care plan it was a you know it was like a one-year-old there was a child in there while you were in this space and you didn't notice the kid no no and it was i mean as as a father i kind of kind of understand like why you would do this if you're a single parent and you're downstairs and you're working and you want to make sure that your one-year-old is not going to you know hurt themselves i can see like as a desperate measure sort of doing that i don't know a cinder block and a piece of wood is a good way to have the kid not hurt themselves well i guess the they had rigged it so the kid was basically (laughs) basically in prison and couldn't get out but yeah and like that kind of stuff where you see like oh jesus this is this is how people live yeah and so Location scouting was great in that way. It was all these portraits of the people who live here. By the very nature of the job, you're going to see the extremes because all of these shoots, you know, a lot of them are going to be taking place in the very wealthy or the very poor areas. Yeah. I mean, there was one, I I scouted a, a single family, like five-story townhouse, which was owned by, I don't know, I think like the president of Smith and Wesson or something. Okay. Yeah. And I got in there because, you know, as a scout, you just kind of, sometimes you just knock on doors and someone opens. And I think the teenage son of the owner said, Oh yeah, come on in. And like, once the parents found out, they're like, no, no, you're not going to go. And so you see like, wow, here's a single family home that has multiple floors. It has a basketball court in the apartment. It has all the, you know, all the amenities and has an elevator in the in so that's how one kind of yeah. New Yorker lives and then um, in New York there are these things called double deckers mm-hmm. do you know what this is it's it's a in the Lower East Side in the East Village they would build a tenement and this is be- something has something to do with the zoning laws yeah. of the city and so it behind the tenement there would be sort of a mini tenement that could exist sort of freestanding sort of in a backyard Huh. It's a very sort of strange structure. Like sandwiched between buildings? It's like you have a tenement, and if yeah. you walk to the back of the tenement, there's like an open area sometimes, yeah. and in that open, like a lot. A courtyard? Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. And in that courtyard, you somehow you could build a mini huh. tenement that could hold several yeah. families. So I scouted the apartment of a prostitute 
who had just been tossed into jail. Mm-hmm. And so I saw, you know, the landlord let me in and let me see, like... Wait, that was the real story or that yeah. was... Okay, that no, wasn't no. the movie that you were scouting for. No, I was just yeah. sort of like, I, we need this kind of space. Show me what you have. And this was... The, and the landlord said, "This is it prostitutes." Well, I after, I mean, yeah. I, I would ask. It was like I went into this. It was the the most maybe the saddest location I've ever seen. Yeah. It was like there was a mattress. There's clothes, a few clothes strewn around. There's like a calendar picture on the wall. It was the sort of a yellow. Like, no, it was awful. Like a single light bulb yeah. swinging from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, like the worst thing you can imagine. Totally impoverished. I th- she was like a drug addict, I think. Yeah. And I just was asking, like, What's, what is this? I was like, oh, yeah, this this girl lived here. She's just, she got taken away. So th- that's also who lives in in New York City. Yeah. And then everything in between. You yeah. know, um, the musicians who live in Washington Heights, mm-hmm. that's like a big sort of musician area because yeah. it's a straight shot on the A down from Washington Heights down but, all, to, but also Columbia is up there. Yeah, and just these sort of peculiarities and idiosyncrasies of the city. So 95, the, the two of you move out here to do theater? Yeah. Yeah, my wife and I, Anne Halliday, um, who you interviewed, Anne and I were part of the Neo Futurists. We were maybe best known for a show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go yeah, Blind. Which exists out here. Or kind of. They went through this change yeah. where they couldn't use that title anymore, yeah. and they had to change a little bit. Are but the, the Night Vale guys somehow connected to that? I think so, yes. I haven't been with them for a while. Yeah. So, um... 20 years? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we had come out here several times with sort of exploratory missions. We did a show at The Public. We did a show at Here. We had come out, and we yeah. thought, well, geez, if we just come out and we try to put some roots down... And we have sort of the equivalent of a sit-down company. Maybe we'll find careers. Maybe we'll. Hmm. Maybe the show can take off. Maybe we can get writing gigs for television. Something. In '95, that wasn't such a crazy idea. Uh, At least not to the degree it would be now. Is it a crazy? I mean, if, well, to try to just survive in the city. Yeah, I mean, in Chicago, if you're pursuing, I mean, theater. It's a great theater town, but there comes. At least when I was there, there there sort of comes a point where you decide, okay, I'm either going to stay here and probably never make my living as a theater artist unless mm-hmm. you're lucky enough to work for one of the big companies like Steppenwolf, Goodman, et cetera. Yeah. Or you go to Los Angeles or you go to New York. And this usually happens somewhere around your late 20s, early 30s. In Los Angeles, you're kind of heading into movie TV land out there. Yeah. So anyway, that was around that time, around our late 20s, we said, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's try it. And so, I mean, I don't know that it seemed all that sane, but it yeah. was sort of like either we try this or we just accept that we're, we won't have paying careers, at least. And that you'll live with the regret or yeah. the, the what if, having never even attempted it. Yeah. And, you know, and in retrospect, I think staying in Chicago and creating work, you can create work in Chicago in ways that you it's very difficult in New York just because of the expense, yeah. the constant, you know, everything that we talked about earlier. So you can make your plays and you can be on stage and you can play that part that you want. And so those things are possible, but making a living is much harder. You can bring it into the world, but actually taking that next step with it where it becomes a re- an actual money-making venture is a lot more yeah. difficult. I mean, that was the goal. It's just like, can we make a living yeah. just doing this? Can we quit our day job? Yeah. The, the classic thing. So yeah, we came and we put the show up for one year at 
here, um, which still exists. What was the show? Uh, Too Much Light Makes a Baby Go Blind, a yeah. New York version of that. So we had a, a comp- It's a short, um, it's like one acts or something. Yeah, it is 30 plays in yeah. 60 minutes and it's sort of like broadly defined what a play is. It can be <laughs> five seconds long or three minutes long. Three minutes is actually kind of long for Too Much Light. So you do 30 shorts in one hour and there's lots of sort of gimmicks to the to yeah, the show. Like you there would it, have to be. <laughs> yeah, like you do the plays in a random order determined by the audience. Yeah. You do it to a darkroom timer. So you only so once the clock goes off, when the hour goes off, the show's done, no matter where you are in the show. And there's a whole aesthetic behind it, which is all based on a kind of interpretation of, of extreme honesty, where you don't play characters and your stories you tell are real. And so that was a real training ground for me, too. And also, the show is constantly changing. You throw out a random number of plays every week, yeah. determined by the roll of a dice. So the, there's a constant trend. So like every month or so, the material is completely new. So as a writer, that's also a great education because you sort of burn through all your tricks really quickly and then you have to start to explore other things that you might not have otherwise and so we do that one year in here and then one year at nada which was a theater in the lower east side that has since become like a bar and then a restaurant Mm -hmm. and some other things and then we had kids and we had a kind of stop around 97 when our daughter was born we started to kind of transition from being kind of theater gypsy people to trying to bohemians yeah and then so we just tried to be parents you know yeah. because theater is very nocturnal and parenting is very day oriented i mean some people can do it we couldn't do it so we just try to transform ourselves from theater freaks to adults adults yeah yeah there was no question that you're going to stay in new york i mean it, you know it's it obviously has its pluses and minuses when it comes to raising children i think we we had talked about moving but you know Anne is from indiana mm. and she grew up with like seeing new yorkers magazines on coffee tables and like the idea of f- after finally getting to new york to leave she's like no way we're staying here and she loves the you know the stoop life and the street life and the, yeah. and the just the vibrancy of the city. I like it too, but I, I was more following her lead as far as like we're staying. Her zine is very much about that. Yeah, absolutely, totally. So yeah, and I think even though we were trying to extract ourselves from theater, in a way, I don't know that you can really completely quit. Yeah. Sort of like you're kind of stuck. So yeah, so then we 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 transitioned from being you know. Late night people to being early morning people. Did Broadway seem like a possibility, a realistic possibility at any point? No. I mean, no. (laughs) Broadway... You didn't even entertain the idea? No. And the truth is I'd never even seen a Broadway show. Yeah. I saw um, Sugar Babies with my mom, like in the... On some visit. Is that some like Guys and Dolls type thing? It was like a variety show with... um, Mickey Rooney. Okay. It was sort of like this old sort of vaudeville. Yeah. yeah. Sugar Babies or Sugar Daddies, yeah. something like that. So that, that was the one time that I had been in a Broadway theater. And so Broadway was just foreign. And it might as well be Disney World. It was just that thing that a lot of people do, but I didn't know about it. I mean, the things that I aspired to was like maybe one day having something, maybe at one of the smaller spaces in the public. That would be amazing. Or maybe having something in one of the off-Broadway hmm. professional theaters. That would be amazing. That's that's the most that I ever really hoped to dream about. And the thing with Town, which is this show that um, really has paid our way for the past, you know, 
since 2001. Um, <laughs> Which yeah. is crazy to say. It was the kind of show that we had written in Chicago, just goofing off and making each yeah, other Yeah, I mean, the name is is kind of an indication to me that maybe you didn't expect it to be a mainstream success. Is that safe to say? Yeah, it was just, you know, we had spent a decade in Chicago and then later in New York writing shows that made us laugh and that yeah. we liked and that that was the first priority. And to try to make it as well as we could, after getting this idea for this show, I went to Mark Holman, who's my writing partner, composer, and we had written, we had been part of a theater company in Chicago for years, and I thought he might take to it. And he's really an accomplished composer and a real student of the musical. So the idea for Year in Town was it was going to be an insane conceit, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be really well made. That's going to be the difference. Because there's lots of shows that are kind of insane, but it doesn't matter how well made. I mean, this is not to disparage sort of crazy shows, but it's not about complex harmonies and vocal arrangements and competing themes and all the stuff that Mark can do. It's it's more about we're having a great time. And there's no illusion that they'll ever be anything probably larger than what they are. Yeah. I think there's lots of shows that are written quickly and are a blast and they're meant to you see it, you enjoy it, you move on. So anyway, the, I mean, but the, and that's the whole thing about too much light is, is to create something that, in a sense, is kind of disposable. Yes, exactly. But with this show, the thought was with Mark, it could be this combination of downtown madness, but with Broadway craftsmanship. And so that's what we did between 1996 or so and 1999. We just worked on the show um, and. I don't know about Mark, but I didn't really have anything better to do creatively. <laughs> I just wanted to make this insane fun show, yeah. put it up somewhere, declare victory, <laughs> and then be done with theater. One final fun hmm. time. So it was written. So in- when you said like giving up that life for the kids, you were really going to give up that life for the kids. Yeah. My plan was um, one final show. Yeah. This would be it. Just for kicks, to get the poster. Usually, that's like the big thing. Yeah. Right? You get the poster, you put the poster up. And... With heroin addicts, it's always that one final <laughs> go that gets them. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and I was a location scout, and I kind of enjoyed that. And what I saw, like the 20-year plan or the 30-year yeah. plan was, and that was the longest time I had been in a regular job. Yeah. It's not really a regular job, but it was like a job that it pays and yeah. health and benefits and that kind of Full-time. stuff. Full-time. Yeah. So you're a location scout, then you're assistant location manager, then you're a location manager. You were doing that when you moved to the city. That happened almost immediately. Uh, like the year, yeah, six months after I got here. But actually chasing the theater dream and, and doing location scout, those two things coincided for a while. Well, I did not have aspirations to sort of rise to, to like really I, – I was the kind of worker – I was mostly interested in writing and mm-hmm. writing plays. And Urinetown really was the thing that was – really consuming me when I was a look for most of the time when I was a location scout. So, and it was really informed by, you know, stuff that we had talked about where you see the really, the poor, you see this really sort of very visible poverty, homelessness was much more visible and public in New York than it ever was that I saw in Chicago. And also the insane wealth of this city where you have people just unimaginably sort of living in incredible splendor. That was informing sort of the world that of that show. And I was just trying to write this musical, and I just wanted to finish it. 
And I went back and forth. I mean, I did it, then I went to temping and... Because I think you said it was like a span of three years, right? Yeah. I mean, it was 1995, 96. I'll say 95 when I first started working there. Then I would leave and I would do temping. Then I would come back and I would get my job back. So yeah, from 95, 96 to 2001, actually, mm. because 99 is when Year in Town happened at the Fringe Festival, but it took two years for it to get to Broadway. I feel like there's going to be a 9-11 story in here. There's got to be. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, nobody can talk about 2001 in New York and not have somehow lead back to 9-11. Yeah. I mean, you're in town is kind of, it's, it's very tightly connected to 9-11 in that we were supposed to open September 13th. Hmm. And so, uh, we were in previews when 9-11 happened. Open as a real Broadway show? Yeah, I think that was our opening yeah. night. Was going to be September thirteenth. Wow. Broadway was dark nine eleven. It was dark nine twelve, and I think September thirteenth was the day when all the shows or most of the shows started to open back up. It's a surprisingly fast turnaround, given like how everything else was so shut down for so long. Yeah, and I think it was a it was a deliberate choice and insistence both by the theater community and also Giuliani. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, we have a different the perspective. The new normal or get back to... Yeah, I mean, it, it was sort of... I really appreciate it because it felt like an act of defiance and yeah. an act of like... I don't know. It just it felt like a deliberate choice that, no, 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 we're going to forge ahead. But the flip side of that is, you know, I know in comedy there was a big question of like, when can we start making jokes again? Yeah. There's a lot to be said for... Um, giving something giving people something to be you know joyful about but but at the same time i mean in the grand scheme of things a broadway show is kind of a frivolous thing right yes yeah it totally is but the thing the thing that was really beautiful about that moment yeah. was theater was about new yorkers coming together mm-hmm. coming into a space and you know um in this period now more than ever where people can just sort of be alienated from one another theater is about coming together yeah and seeing other human beings telling stories right in front of you and so it felt kind of it just felt very life affirming yeah. and of course what you say is true but this our city and our country and our moment in here in history is all about creating frivolous yeah. sort of things yeah and it is i guess it's there can be something heightened and elevated about the effort of trying to understand each other through any of the arts. And a musical is kind of the most heightened of arts in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, because there's singing and dancing and it's a deliberate sort of larger than life. Yeah. You already have to sort of divorce yourself from certain realities of sitting in a theater and watching people spontaneously burst out into song. Right. All that stuff. And Urinetown, I believe, was the first musical to op- reopen after 9 11. Yeah. And it was. Not even reopen, just open. Uh, right. We were yeah. in previews. So, but uh, yeah, right. We were the first one. That's right. We were the first one to sort of formally open. Yeah. And we opened formally one week later, September 20th. Mm. Um, and it felt a little iffy. I mean, if you remember, we weren't sure what other shoe was going to drop. Yeah. You know, I remember sort of being jumpy every time a plane passed over. Yeah. Like, it was like, ah, as if they Flights were grounded for a while after that. It was really hard yeah. to fly. Yes. But then when they came back, yeah. and then I think even in that period, there was a plane crash that mm. was not, had anything to do with terrorism, but I think there was some kind of plane crash. Yeah. 
still the case now. You know, we're we're <laughs> this fire is happening across the street. Any yeah. uh, anytime anything happens, that's still you know it's been 16 years now, and still anytime anything happens, people automatically go to terrorism. Yep. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard to remember what life was like before. Yeah. It. And even the period that we're in now, this whole Trump thing, yeah. it's all born response, out of the, yeah. the national response and the political response to it. You know, and another thing that was great about that time is that people from around the country would come to see a Broadway show mm-hmm. as a act of solidarity with the city. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. There were like groups that came from Portland, Seattle, Nevada, yeah. wherever. And they said, we're coming to see a Broadway show because yeah. we're going to show support for our fellow countrymen. It was like the Boston Strong thing before Boston Strong was a thing. Yeah. 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 And just being being lucky enough to be a part of the world where you have a Broadway show. Yeah. I just felt tremendously moved and appreci- appreciative that this this was the organic response of countrymen from the f- yeah. four corners. You must have felt, had this sinking feeling that there's no possible way that this show can. And it was crazy enough that it even made its Broadway, but that this can actually be a hit, you know, that this is going to be sustainable. I had no idea. What I thought was going to happen with the show was maybe like the performing garage would pick it up, maybe, or there was a guy from the performing, maybe it would be sort of like a comes kind of downtown hit yeah. kind of yeah. cult show that Just would a cool run little yeah that's 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 what i thought what i've learned since then is just sort of the economics of a musical is it can't really function in a sustained way at least a big production I mean, you're, yeah you're yeah. in kind of 15 16 people depending on the production plus a ba- four piece per piece band mm-hmm. and all that stuff so for that to work it's kind of has to be on broadway um, yeah. It's hard for it not to. I didn't know that, but I just thought, oh, it's going to be a fun show. Make it a big show. You know, it's a, it's a ridiculous idea. It has to be in the biggest sort of presentation that we can think of, which is a big Broadway musical with, you know, huge part singings and all that stuff. Yeah. So this was your final shot at it. So just go all in. Yeah. And it wasn't even, uh, I didn't really think of it as like a final shot so much as, this is sort of put to rest yeah. this unhealthy relationship with this art form, which was keeping me from... But at the same time, let me put every single thing I have into it and then some. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's sort of like that for every show in that it is you get completely obsessed with it and you can't think of anything else. It's, and, it's kind of that world building thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was last shot or or declare yeah. victory when we did it at the fringe festival in 1995 in 1999 the people who ran the fringe they came to us and they said we think you have something really special here we think you should start reaching out to producers so that was sort of the first hint of like oh maybe there's something more than because they were seeing our rehearsals we were in the space where they actually the the fringe festival was run out of so they got a oh they they could stop and see what we were doing in the in the few days that we were rehearsing. So they gave us like lists of producers, and we that was the first hint of like maybe there's something more to this yeah. than just a, a one off. But for something like that, you know, even when you get to the stage where you're in previews, for something that seems so 
unrealistic and and perhaps sort of like unsustainable do you have to defend yourself against the seeming inevitability that like this isn't going to last forever oh well i mean theater is sort of like that yeah it's, it's always like that like yeah. you're always like but you had kind of had the cards stacked against you yes yeah i mean it was it all felt a little bit like borrowed time so i mean we were off broadway before we were broadway and i didn't even it it did not really occur to me that we would have a broadway life yeah that seemed impossible even with the starry cast that we had and the brilliant creative team and you know, solid producers, I just thought, oh, we're going to have this great run mm-hmm. in this really wonderful off-Broadway space, the American Theater of Actors, which was above a police precinct and <laughs> court. So there, to get to the, the – for the off-Broadway run, you had to walk past sort of a, like a phalanx of cop cars in order to get to the show, which was great because yeah. police presence is a really important part of the show. So that all felt great. Yeah. And really we, taking the fourth wall down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You had to, you had to walk past yeah. at, at a certain time. There was a cop who was sort of had, who, who watched the door because yeah. if you go left, you go to the, the, the court. If you go right, you go to our theater. Mm-hmm. So, and then at some point during the off Broadway run, we were called into one of the dressing rooms by the producers and said, and they just told us we're going to Broadway. Just that. Yeah. Just like to sort of, even if we only ran a day, that would have been sort of an amazing, unbelievable ride. The whole experience was completely new. I didn't know what to expect. I just knew that, you know, the show that we had written was just given fantastic life beyond anything I had known before. You know, singers who were these, you know, John Cullum and Nancy Opel yeah. and Jeff McCarthy yeah. and Daniel Marcus and all Jennifer Lord Thompson and Hunter Foster, all these fantastic seasoned um, Broadway musical theater actors were breathing life into our mm. crazy show. It was amazing. It, and, you know, we still, we're still, we haven't given up, um, you know, trying to, we're still writing new shows and still trying to get them to um, the best production and the best life that we can find for them um, because it's just too much fun. It's too amazing to see, you know, it's a very collaborative form and to have someone come in and interpret a part. You know, there's the actor who played, there's a character in, um, in town called Hot Blades Harry. Mm-hmm. And he's the villain. And... Uh, he was played by an actor named Ken Jennings, who was the original, I want to say, Toby in, I'm going to get the character name wrong, but in Sweeney Todd. Okay. The boy. Yeah. He was the original yeah. boy. So he's this brilliant, yeah. insane actor who has this starry career. who have been doing it for a very long time, it sounds like. Yeah, and he was, he made choices that were yeah. just, I mean, this was true of all the actors. Um just to see a line that you think is kind of funny and then see like a real comedian yeah. trying to chew on it and make something of it. Thrilling. When you get to that height, when you see kind of, I really like the top of where you can be in that world. Is it, do you find yourself chasing that? Yes. For me, it's, it is yes, but also I feel I really love the storefront theater, do it yourself, Chicago sensibility that I was a part of yeah which is 
a particular kind of humor and a particular kind of you know fear based comedy mm. where what does, what does fear based mean I think that people are fighting for their lives you know yeah and that it's not witty I don't the things that I write aren't particularly witty mm. there aren't any jokes per se it's all about people under extreme duress okay. trying to survive like specifically fear based fear in the in the storyline yeah and the and the and the the, the um context of the of the world so you're in town is very much like that we wrote another musical called yeast nation the mm-hmm. triumph of life that took that takes place in the year four billion bc mm-hmm. all the characters are single-celled organisms which i'm tremendously proud of <laughs> um that hasn't had the same life of year in town obviously um it's sort of part of this trilogy that we think yeah that, you know this the first is four billion bc the second we, the dream is that you have a, like a box set. You have to buy three uh-huh. scripts. Your in town will be in the middle, and then there'll be some um, ultra futuristic musical that we still have yet to write. Because and also that it parallels my I sort of have a dark half glass half folk view of yeah. humanity. I just discovered this. New, I mean, it's new to me. I'm sure it's not new to other people. Podcast called Generation. Anthropocene. It's 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 a newly coined. Yeah. I don't know who coined it. Some scientist. Newly coined term for the period that we are now in. So okay. It is uh, acknowledging that the impact of humanity on the world is so tremendous that yeah. it's actually like a geological force. Yeah. What, what are they calling it? The, was it the sixth extinction? Exactly. All this stuff is happening, and it's happening so quickly in yeah. geological ter- terms that we don't quite get a sense of it yeah but i think everybody knows it and i'm preoccupied with this sure. obviously so if you ask me times are bad they're gonna get a lot worse yeah and get ready and we as human beings are very un- it's very improbable that we're going to sort of organize ourselves into yeah. a way that we can actually deal with it doesn't mean we shouldn't try it's just improbable it's unlikely yeah you know witness the paris accords which was the best we could get in terms of international you know uh consensus about let's do this thing let's try to limit carbon fossil fuels yeah. etc let's let's see if we let's all try to do that shall we and of course the the first thing that happens after we agree to this is we elect someone who's like Screw that. I don't want any of that, right? And not for any principled reason either. That, to me, that's the craziest thing about it. You know, there's, and when you really, when you really kind of take a fine tooth comb through it, there's nothing in there that he or we or anyone should necessarily be opposed to. It's just opposition to the abstract idea of having to buy into something that France is buying into. Yeah. And it's, it's contempt for yeah. people who have knowledge. It's contempt for, yeah. Anti-intellectualism. Yeah, and it's it's um, they think it's a fraud, and and uh, yeah. and um, you know, with Trump because he traffics in fraud, and he yeah. and he rips people off. He assumes everybody else is doing that too. Yeah, so he immediately interprets it. It can't be something far-thinking. It can't be something that is actually people who are concerned with preserving life. There's got it's got to be a con of some kind mm-hmm. because they are con men. They see a con job in everything. Yeah. Um, so it's more evidence of like, yeah, we're really not going to 
we're really not going to turn the the steamliner away from yeah, the iceberg, yeah, yeah. and maybe we maybe it's too late for that anyway. <laughs> Do you feel like the worse things get, the more source material you have? <sighs> yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, this is like an old story. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not saying it's a fair trade off at all. <laughs> it's like to to me, it's like there's a imagine a comet, and you can see it mm. in the day mm-hmm. or at night. Mm-hmm. It's there. Yeah, it's a big black smoking yeah missile that you can see during the day and, and you go about your business and you look up it's still there a little bit closer at night it's a flaming ball and that's the impact of humanity on the earth mm-hmm. that's what it feels like to me inevitability so, of disaster yeah. and and the idea of like talking about something other than that yeah i find difficult it's um I don't know why you would want to talk about anything other than that meteor. Does making art feel frivolous when that's on the horizon? Well, I'll say no because it can be cathartic. Yeah. And it can be it to me acknowledging the truth of that is a is meaningful. Everything else feels like distraction. And allegory is still a powerful way to do that. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's really easy to get news burnout when yeah. you when you when that's all you're doing when when that's all you hear about. So maybe there need to be other ways to tell the story where it, people won't get numb to it. I mean, that's what are we like 150 days in or 200 days mm. in at this point? I feel like I'm pretty close to the point where like I don't really care anymore, and that depresses me. Right. How long can we sustain this interest? Yeah. How long can we stay this focused? You can't do it by being tapped into the 24-hour cable news cycle. Yeah, you go crazy. Yeah. And I think people are kind of, I'm going a little bit Mm -hmm. crazy. I think, well, I mean, allegory is in part, you know, I I had two, uh, two teachers, which was this company called the Cardiff Giant Theater Company that mm-hmm. I worked with with Mark Holman and a bunch of other people mm-hmm. it was we were improvisers who It's like of, the big Welsh golem, right? Yeah. Uh <laughs> the card the story of Cardiff Giant is um there was a farmer in upstate New York who uh, Oh yeah, the Cardiff, clay uh, yeah yeah yeah. And he yeah. and he um claimed to have unearthed the, a fossilized prehistoric giant. Yeah. And PG Barnum went and looked at it and said I'd like to buy your your giant yeah. Can I buy it for my my show? And the farmer said no. And so P.T. Barnum f- had an artist fashion his own Cardiff giant and toured it around. And uh-huh. even after people knew that it was a hoax of a hoax, they still wanted to, they would pay to come see it. Yeah. So it's it's I think it's uh, sort of a, a tale of American hucksterism mm-hmm. and show, showmanship. Um. So in that theater company, the principles were. No bad words, and there are no bad words in Urinetown or mm. in East Nation or in – we have a new zombie musical that um, is going to have a reading out in Seattle that we're very proud of. Um, so there are no bad words in any of those, no four-letter words, because that was the the aesthetic of that company. Hmm. There's no, there's no uh, moral reason to do that. Well, I guess the moral reason was – you know, we were doing it at a time when there were a lot of comics who were sort of really yeah. getting, were doing, being very blue. Yeah. And we looked at that and we said, okay, we have to be different. Yeah. And we have to, we need to figure out how to make people laugh without saying 
any of the four letter words because it felt just like too like meh. it's got to be there's got to be more to it than that and constraints uh, parameters are powerful and u- useful when it comes to making something absolutely yeah you need a frame the the stronger yeah. the frame um, absolutely all that stuff so no bad words and also no topical references <laughs> also because we looked at comics at the time and all you know yeah. they could say blah 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 Reagan at that time yeah. and they would get a laugh and like that's too easy so there are no topical references in any of our shows it's all self-created so you have to have your own world and the benefit of that is um, the shelf life is longer yeah it's not rooted in an immediate time and place so there is shelf life to allegory. As I was, you know, looking into some some interviews that you had done, I think somebody, I didn't really follow the the, the rabbit hole too far, but somebody offhandedly made a Flint reference with oh, regards yeah. to Urinetown. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what parallel they were trying to draw out of it, but it is interesting, though, that if you do something that is, broad's not the right word, but something that really, I think, speaks to something of the human condition, that those comparisons will come back time and again. Yeah, and it, it you know, theater is also interpretive. Yeah. So there are some things that are very deliberate within the show. It should feel like... Warsaw Ghetto, Gang of Chicago, mm-hmm. those are sort of elements that should be a part of it. But there's also a lot of room for interpretation, which yeah. company directors and actors love. They don't they don't want to have to do the same thing. So it's not topical from the standpoint that it's current, but there ha- there do have to be certain frames, you know, people need to know, people need to be familiar with the Holocaust, for example. It is rooted in some sort of real-world historical ideas. Yeah, I mean, the feeling of it yeah. is, um, there's. I mean, you won't see that in the script, but I hope people pick up on it yeah. in like the Brechtian, I mean, Brecht and the Holocaust is sort of tightly bound. Yeah. Um, and the idea of, you know, the villains is kind of a, there's a gangland kind yeah. of flashy cruelty hmm. about how they deal with each other. Is Brecht, is that sort of the idea of making art in wartime? Well, I mean, Brecht, this is, so Cardiff Giant is one teacher. Yeah. The Neo-Futurist is another teacher. And Brecht and tearing down the fourth wall and having immediate mm-hmm. access to your audience, yeah. that's another principle that Brecht, he's one of the the yeah. cr- creators, I guess, in, in a sense of that idea of agitprop and um, acknowledging the artifice. Mm-hmm. So um, I think... Mark, when we were writing it, he picked up on this sort of the Brechtian stuff that was going on. And so he went to Kurt Weil. And so the Weilian kind of mood and dark, you know, burgundy kind of colors of the score really present. And that should be evocative of the stakes of a place like the Warsaw ghetto. But, but it is interesting. Like, you know, again, I'm I'm not, I'm not much of a theater guy myself, but you know, I've, like cabaret is coming mm-hmm. to mind, right? Of the idea of sort of celebration during with the backdrop of something really terrible. So, but having entertainment as as escape, but you can't really avoid those things bleeding into it. Like you right. can't avoid the world around you bleeding into the art. Yeah, and that the 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 pressure cooker of the yeah. landscape is one of the engines of the story. That's the thing that Urinetown has. 
has going for it, as well as Yeast Nation. And this zombie musical is called ZM. So the same kind of thing. Where ZM, the zombie musical. So it's sort of like, of course, it's like, because we, you know, we have a working title when you when you're doing stuff. So yeah. we called it zombie musical for the longest time. Yeah. Then we sort of would pare it down to ZM. And after I was like, that's not, that's not a bad title. It's an odd title, yeah. but it's, you know, yeah. yeah. hopefully it'll peak interest. But yeah, it's like human beings struggling against all odds to survive. There's, is, is a, a great ancient sort of backdrop for, yeah. for comedy. Yeah. I mean, there's another sort of, there's all different, you know, there's, there's the, there's witty and there's light and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know if I would know what to do with that. I think it is about my own fears. So I am sort of peeking a little bit into the future and trying to imagine how we're going to make it, whatever, 100 years from now, 200 years from now. Does having kids exacerbate that worry about the future? It must, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you can't really be completely death dark. I mean, yeah, and you and you know, and 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 like we know after a certain age that we've only got a certain amount of time on earth, regardless. Yeah, totally, absolutely. And and being a parent is both tremendously hopeful and yeah. life affirming and rich, but at the same time, the fears are all exacerbated. You know, we live now in a time when, and this last election is all about this, where, um, our futures are getting worse and dimmer. Hmm. The the generations are not going to do as well as you know. We're we're on the on the other end of the slope. Yeah. So sort of wrapping our heads around the idea of scarcity and um, lowering expectations as Americans, this drives us bananas. Yeah. And that's what I think Trump is about that too. Yeah. Um, as is well, he's Bernie's- about excess, which is well, it's about the denial yeah. and the delusion that. Um, American wealth and prosperity is an inevitable, a constant, you know, trajectory. Twain is the one who, who coined the Gilded Age to describe that period of time. Yeah. You know, of, and the idea of basically like having a piece of tin with a, a little bit of gold lacquer uh, on the outside of it. But I mean, what, what better way to describe Trump who literally like traffics in gold colored things that aren't actually gold? <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's a phenomenal act of denial. Yeah. This president. We're going to find out. Yeah. You know, it's not going to end well one way or the other. Do you think there's any possibility that that we might just be too close to it to not be able to see the forest for the trees? Every generation thinks that they're going to be the last, right? Uh, It's a good question. Probably. Yeah. I mean, it's worth remembering. I remember when I was a kid, when Reagan was elected. Yeah. In my household, we were hysterical. I mean, yeah. I was a kid, so I was like, I, I, I guess I was 14, 1980. Remember when uh, we ate, we used to have to worry about the Russians? That was crazy well, times. <laughs> it, it, it was it was a sense that he's going to blow us up. Yeah. He's a madman. Yeah. And none of that happened. So maybe, maybe it's worth to take a breath and take a step back and think, just relax. Yeah. This is just this weird moment that we're in. Western culture has survived... Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin. I mean, uh, Mao is not Western culture, but I mean, there have been some pretty rough times in the 20th century. Right. And the, 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 we're still here. Yeah. Yeah. But 100 million, you know, violently murdered people later. Climate change and, and even more so nuclear warheads changed the math. 
Yeah, and and the doomsday, the doomsday. St- I mean, obviously, nuclear war is that we. It's, it's too it's too dark to consider. I was reading a, another uh, North Korea thing before we started this conversation, so that's kind of at the front of my mind. But climate change, it's more going to be about yeah. things like more violent, yeah. dramatic movements of populations. The whole thing that Europe is going through right now, yeah. that's all about climate change. The whole thing in Syria is sort of one that's yeah. that's a climate change yeah. thing. Um rising, you know, it's just it's going to be massive, dramatic, rapid transformation of our environment. And we're going to figure out one way or the other, but it's just going to be a lot of hardship. It is, but it's also that thing of slowly boiling a frog in the yeah. in the pot. Where you know, I, I think there's been this constant question of what the breaking point for deniers is going to be, and because things escalate at the speed that they do, there doesn't have to be one. If one of those terrible John Cusack movie, The Day After Tomorrow, like happened overnight, sure, but it just slowly moves in that direction, and then you know, there then. then you do hit that point of no return. Yeah, that's what they tell us. I yeah. mean, it's like the, the scientists are have been have been screaming to the high heavens for yeah. decades about this, and so Paris was about you know, and Obama and Hillary, for that matter. These are enlightened elite, yeah, uh, politicians who understand who, can, who who know who to believe and who to listen to, and Bernie, for that matter, too. I think he's he's completely accepting of it. Um, and the, and, you know, Trump and rolling coal and it's just people saying, nah, I don't believe it. And you know what, what would be the point of believing it? What are we going to do about it? I went to, I went to Mexico for the first time, Uh essentially, uh, a few months ago. Um, there was a theater company called the Icaro Teatro, Teatro Icaro. It's a great theater company in Mexico that was doing a production of Urinetown in Spanish. And they contacted me and said, would you come down? I went there in March and I asked them, I went there with two questions because I wanted to see the production. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always great to meet international productions of your show. It's really, really fun. Um, and I went with two productions, two questions. One was, what is the, what is the meaning of, of climate change mm-hmm. to you? And environmentalism, does that play a part? And number two is, what do you make of Trump? So the answer to Trump was, which surprised me a little bit, which was people said things like, I always thought the U.S. had our back. Yeah. And we feel really disappointed and betrayed. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't know that that would be the response. Like, there's always so much... I, I always sense so much hostility towards Mexico yeah. and the American electorate. Maybe George W. Bush to some degree, but this is really kind of the first, I think, president that was really elected based on that conversation that about host- yeah. that, that specific that border. Yeah. I mean, that was such a driving force. Yep. And I think I think we've lost track of that a little bit because so many things have happened in the interim. Yeah. Build the wall. All yeah. That. Right. That was his first thing that he said. And the other, and the, with climate change, they just said, we have so many problems here. Yeah. The first problem being corruption, political corruption, and then other things just like trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Climate change is not really big on, their, on our list. Yeah. Which also, I guess, kind of surprised me. Yeah. But 
I think that's true in a lot, a lot of part of the world. Even the parts that are going to be most dramatically affected by. But I do, th- I do think Mexico is a lot more progressive about climate change than we are at the moment, from what I can tell. Yeah, I think so. But just from the people that I were talking yeah. about, they were like, "Yeah, we care." But I suspect that if you pull a large portion of the U.S. populace, they would have the same exact. Even if they're not deniers, if they're out of a job, if they don't have health insurance, yeah, care? like that's pretty far down on their list too. Yep. Yeah, and figuring out how to square that, yeah, the challenge, the political challenge. You know, it's like, how do you tell? I mean, that's what also what Paris was about. It was like trying to figure out. Okay, we have ours. You want what we have. In order to have what we have, you have to burn a lot of coal and industrialize and modernize, which means that we can't really have the same rules for us for you but we have to kind of because if we don't then and like that conversation it all again points to the improbability that as a species we're going to get together we're going to figure out how to essentially save ourselves or at least save life as we know it we can't we can't help ourselves i suspect that a lot of conversations that you have particularly up sort of delve into this kind of depressing area and what I'm what I'm wondering is when you know when you're putting together a show, um, you can't you can't just put together something that is completely bleak, right? I mean, there has to be an entertainment factor. People are going to go see it. Um, but how do you how do you square the two? How do you square the fun of a Broadway musical and a very depressing subject matter? Well, I mean, hopefully it's funny. Yeah. So I, I you need I, to cut the tension with humor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it is a school of comedy of saying if you speak the truth, then that's where the the, the comedy is is to be found. The truth in our situation, the truth in the relationships between the characters, the truth in the in the revelation. So it's the comic lens. You know, Woody Allen, his stuff is bleak and neurotic and hilarious. Yeah. I think that's like a really deep vein of comedy you know that that it there's something about trying to deal with the hardest bleakest most depressing stuff that can be engaging and fascinating if you can do it with a little bit of spirit and then also the benefit of a musical is about every five minutes there's gonna be some song to sing yeah there's gonna be people dancing and singing and carrying on so that's the other advantage that something like a musical has, and like our kind of dark, dark musical, as opposed to I don't know, the Iceman cometh, dark, dark, bleak, unhappy. We're unhappy. We're still unhappy, yeah. and we'll be unhappy now as the as the curtain is dropping. You know that we will never be happy. You probably need that for your own sanity too. If you're going to work on something for that many years, and you're going to live in that world, then you're going to need to cut the tension for your own sake. It's the obsession of like trying to make the thing good. Yeah, and also. Um, play begins maybe this is true in writing as well any any kind of writing where it begins as sort of like a murky notion mm. and you want to clear away the yeah. fog and the the things that it's obscuring what it is and i think the fever to sort of see the thing completely realized mm. is the thing that is the driving force i guess that's how i experience it it's like you think this thing can be and the only thing standing between the thing existing and it not existing is whether or not you're going to apply yourself to it. You have to be really committed to an idea to, to seeing that through, to spend the amount of time that it takes to do. I mean, you know, I traffic and blog posts 
you know, I, I, I will write several things a day. I haven't, I, I don't know that I've really in, in my adult life spent that much time devoted to one thing. So you really have to believe in a project to see it through to the end. Well, yes. And um, it's sort of like the war will be over by Christmas. It's like when you begin a project, when I begin a project, it feels like, oh, this is happening really quickly. Yeah. It's going to be done in three months. And it's like, no, 10 years later, like Yeast Nation, we started, I actually started before you're in town. So mm. we've been working on that for 20 years. Jesus. Right. And you don't, if you were to look back yeah. and think, or if, if at the beginning of yeah. a project. Somebody said, this is going to take 20 years. Here's what it's going to be. You'd be like, <laughs> uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So you don't know. Yeah. Um, I think it's just mostly that hunger to sort of see the thing, to have a... Yeah. You have an image in your head, you know, like East Nation happens sort of, it is on sort of a blasted heath, the way that you would see in Macbeth, kind of a gurgling lava kind of Yeah, primordial red, ooze. Exactly, yeah. underwater, and um, almost like a uh, Cecil B. DeMille kind of massive epic world, like a great king, like a Nebuchadnezzar-esque king, yeah. and... So just wanting to make that thing is the yeah. that's sort of the problem. The problem. Well, like you can't stop thinking about it until the thing exists. Yeah. You will have no peace until it exists, essentially. Which is the blessing in that it'll actually for someone like me, I mean there's some people who can sit down and they can write and they've got no problem writing. I'm not like that. I'm either I have to be completely consumed by a thing or Yeah. I'll, I will check the news. You know, it's got, so I need that, I need that, that fire. But the joy, you know, it is like any of this stuff. I just, mm -hmm. I was just listening to a interview. I like to I listen to too many podcasts, I listen to Freakonomics. Mm -hmm. And they did an interview with Charles Koch. Mm -hmm. And he referred to. Wait, like. The brother? Coke? Yeah. They did this two-part interview. Wow. It was very generous. I, I think it may be too generous from my perspective, yeah. letting him sort of state his case. Yeah. He talked about what he does as like a drug. Is he one of the really evil brothers? There's like the, uh, there's like the gay theater brother. I think Charles and David, okay. I believe, are what we, yeah. blue Americans, yeah. see as evil. Yeah. And then there, yes, there is a gay son, <laughs> gay brother, yeah. who is not really sort of yeah. part of the, he's sort of, uh, he doesn't participate yeah. in the running of the, of the empire. So to hear him talk, it struck a chord because he talks about the guy who is the interviewer for Freakonomics was pressing him, why do you do this? Yeah. Because people say you do this because it's about power, it's about money. Is it not about those things? And he said, no, I just want to empower people to live up to their full potential. And I want people to have what I have. And that's, I guess that's just when people are liberated from the, um, you know, the, the, the constraints of liberal order, that's like a drug to me. And I was listening to him talk. I'm like, I don't know if I believe you, but... I do understand the idea of the sort of elemental thing that drives you. You know, with me, I did theater in high school, mm -hmm. and I loved it. So that's like the first drug is getting a response from an audience. Yeah. I, I went into theater in high school because my best friend at the time said, there are a couple of girls there. 
that we are interested in. And if we do the play, then we get to maybe, maybe they'll go out with us. So I was like, all right. <laughs> and I think for. That's the story of every rock band. It's, yeah. Every, that drive, that's really, yeah. that's, that it all comes down to that. The primordial ooze. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, so that was the first sort of drug. And then the second one was I took a class in college and I, we had to write stuff for it. And I wrote something which I thought, well, maybe this was funny. And I got a laugh. And this was like, wow, this is so much better than acting for me. kind of comes down to that. There you go. That's Greg Kodis. Thanks to him for taking the time to do that. I should probably mention that the night we recorded that conversation, there was a huge fire happening directly across the street. There was smoke billowing into the office the entire time. It just reeked of smoke. Um, I think there were like five or six blocks cordoned off. At one point, I got up and took a cell phone video of what was happening, and it seriously looked like the apocalypse directly across the street. Now, I suspect that that conversation probably would have more or less gone in that direction, given uh, my and his general personalities and outlooks on life. But I don't think the fact that it literally looked like the world was coming to an end directly across the street necessarily helped things. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation nonetheless. Very, very fascinating and uh, really, really related to, to the part about kind of finding your way in New York City. You know, I had a, I had a similar job uh, at, at Zagat where I would sort of like go around and check things out, but not to the extent that he had or, you know, he, he really got to see the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, it sounds, within a, a very short time period. Uh, thanks so much to him for doing that. Thanks to Anne for setting up that conversation. Uh, I believe that Greg is one of like five or six people who have done the show who does not have a Twitter account. If he did, I apologize. I could not find it. He does, however, have a website. You can follow him over there. It's gregcotis.com. You can check out all of his plays, including uh, obviously Urine Town and uh, ZM, the zombie musical, which we discussed a little bit there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, you can support us by rating us over at iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And I think that's about all I got this week, so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL. 